Hi, everyone. This is Todd Hargrove at the Better Movement Podcast. My guest today is Lee Egger. Lee is the head of performance at Feyenoord Rotterdam, which is a Dutch professional soccer club. I first became interested in Lee's work uh, because he has significant expertise in applying the ideas of Franz Bosch to athletic training and injury prevention and rehab. Bosch is the author of a couple of very interesting books on movement, one of which I previously reviewed on the blog. His ideas are like notoriously interesting and original and controversial and definitely confusing, but Lee has a lot of experience in putting these ideas to practical use, and he's worked closely with uh, Bosch in doing that. I first met Lee at a seminar in L.A., which, which was taught by Bosch, and Lee was uh, there helping to teach. If you do a Google search for Franz Bosch exercises, you can find lots of interesting examples of original and interesting-looking exercises, usually related to running or jumping, such as running with an aqua bag or with a bar on your shoulders, interesting jumping exercises and gait exercises. In this episode, we talked about the logic behind uh, Franz Bosch style exercises, how Lee uses these uh, to help his athletes move better and prevent injury. So we talked about a lot of concepts from dynamic systems theory, like attractors and variability and complexity and motor learning. We also talked about the hip lock position, how the pelvis should function in single leg stance, and how the calf and ankle should function in running. Here we go. Okay, Lee Egger, thanks for coming on my podcast. Thanks, Todd. Great to be here. Um, can you tell us what do you do and tell us about your background and how you got to doing what you do? Um, as of now, I'm working at a, at a football club in the Netherlands. Um, and I work as a joint head of performance. So that's like, uh, for our squad, it's, uh, our squad of players, it's everything mental, physical, social, everything to basically prime them and prep them to perform at their best. Uh, actually when I first moved here, I, I guess I'll work backwards a little bit. When I first came here, it was half, um, rehab coach and half, uh, performance coaching in the role that I initially, um, came in here in Europe. And before that I was, I suppose more and more on the rehab side of things. I'm a trained physiotherapist as well. And, um, initially from Sydney, Australia, that's where I call home. Um, but had previously worked in rugby, football, played football my whole life, um, worked with a bunch of different athletes from different sports, basketball. And, um, yeah, my, my background is very much around sports and, and, and athletes, uh, injury prevention, rehab and maximizing performances. And the performance side is now more where I work, but, um, yeah, that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Were, were you were you somehow involved in contributing to the devastating United States loss against Holland and in, in the World Cup that happened a few, <laughs> a few days ago? <laughs> we we have I think we have one player in our squad that is um, in the Dutch squad, but um, no, definitely not. I was I was rooting for the US, of course. <laughs> hey, hey, well done. They're, they're more they're more similar to Australia in the, at the World Cup. They're underdogs, so you have to you have to pull for them a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, right. The Socceroos, so they're out as well, right? What what happened there? They got crushed, didn't they? By 
A little bit the same, actually. Yeah, they got um, they got through the group stage, which was like a yeah a unfathomable result, really. So they're all national heroes before the the round of sixteen game, I guess it is. Uh-huh. And then they lost two one to Argentina, which was a close game, probably. They oh, played right, right, probably, yeah, probably yeah, the best, right. but um, they overachieved. <laughs> so we met in uh, L.A. I'm going to say like three or four years ago. I was attending a seminar that you were teaching. Uh, with John Pryor and Franz Bosch involving applying some of uh, Bosch's ideas. I've, my, my readers might may know uh, Franz Bosch. He's the Dutch sports scientist who has a bunch of original ideas about how to train and combine strength and coordination. I ended up going down to the seminar, which was really good, and getting exposed to a lot of these uh, interesting ideas that Bosch kind of developed and you guys were applying in the this, this specific context. And uh, if you guys, if if my readers, if my listeners Google or if you've seen uh, some, you know, Franz Bosch style exercises or maybe some of the exercises that I've seen you and John Pryor do with your rugby teams, you'll see some kind of interesting original kind of exercises with people doing skipping movements and using aqua bags and water bags and one leg and cleans. And, and, it, and it looks very interesting. And uh and I've tried some of those, and I and I really like them. Uh, but when someone looks at those, do they do they ask you? Do they? Uh, hey, what's going on here? What, what do you tell people? What is your little elevator speech for how your approach is different, or why you're doing what you're doing? Just at a very surface level, what do you tell people? Yeah, I, I get this obviously a lot from players and from when you when you go and work in new clubs and obviously meet lots of new people and there's so much um, depth and complexity to it because Franz is quite a complex guy and he's highly intelligent as you know when when you when we met initially and when you met Franz but um, I, th- I guess in the industry of strength and conditioning in um, quotation marks then. The, the traditional approach is probably more capacity based as in get, get guys as, as strong as strong as we possibly can, get them as fit as we possibly can, get them as fast as we can. Um, and I suppose from a spectrum from general and those capacities being quite general to then on the other end of the spectrum being specificity, the thing that Franz has probably brought to the table a lot more is sort of dancing along that line of general to specific. Um, and, and more giving definitions of transfer, transfer being what you are training, showing up on the, on the field or in the competition stage. Um, so yeah, basically, uh, and he's dancing closer to, to specific. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, but, so um, I mean, the, the general, the more traditional idea is, like you say, let's get people really strong, and we'll assume that all the strength we get in the gym is going to transfer to the field. And they know that maybe there's not a perfect transfer there, but I guess you you could say that Franz is more skeptical about that transfer uh, than your average coach, right? Yeah, cynical, I would say. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, listen, Franz is uh, he's an incredibly smart man and practitioner and when like when you met him and like I spent time with him all the time and some of his ideas are just like out of this world complex and very difficult to understand um someone like myself has been lucky to spend so much time with him to be able to grasp I think some of the basic concepts and apply them well in practice because ultimately that's what that's what you have to do rather than caught up in the details when you're working with large groups of of uh of young athletes yeah um but um 
that being said, uh, I think also people seeing the fanciness and the the sort of um, funkiness of the, the the movements and the training styles that you see all across. Can you give us age. a few examples of some you know some of these funky movements we're talking about? A, a, a go to uh, movement that you guys might use quite a bit that you don't see other people using that much. This kind of distinctive of your style. Just a few examples. Um, I mean, I suppose like when we're talking about general to specific, like when we are talking specificity, a lot of the stuff that is the real uh, difference makers in terms of like getting people more robust and um, resilient to injury on the field is like actually running variation exercises. So the movements that are happening on the field in complete context, as in running and changing directions and stuff like this. And some of the th- things that uh, Franz has, has popularized or you see people doing is like running without arms or running with a stick on your back or running with a skipping rope. Um, and actually these are just constraints that he adds um, onto your, your more specific um, total movement patterns. Um, and I think then each time we're mentioning something here, you can go down a specific rabbit hole. Like I talk about constraints and then you have like a neural constraints model of uh, task organism and environment or the way that your constraints overlap in specific exercises. And obviously trying to learn from the information that comes from movement and how that those constraints overlap. Um, for example, running straight down 50 meter track, you're just running with uh, free running. How much does somebody learn from that? Um, in my area of football, uh, you would say, I think on the whole, that footballers generally don't uh, run so well or so efficient. They usually quite get quite a lot of injuries. Um, and therefore, a specific ex- or something, a specific example, you might say, players running down with a stick along their back. The stick is there as part of their task constraint, um, that it constrains them in one way. Um, how does, how be, does the stick constrain them? I've seen this exercise. You put a stick like a broomstick across your shoulders and basically try to run as fast as you can. And yeah. the constraint there is what? You can't rotate the upper body as much? Well, you I need tried some. it and it feels really hard. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah, exactly what's happening though. <laughs> Yeah, I think you should post a video of, of you trying it to this to this clip so people can see that. But, um, I think something. So, oh, excuse me. I think um, something key in there is is what the very very, specific, very uh, succinct cueing is whilst you're doing that. In that, if you have the stick on your back, you want to try to keep the stick as still as possible and not from turning side to side too much. So for somebody who might be running and around their longitudinal axis, they're they're rotating a lot either side. Um, that might be seen as a cause for groin injuries or um, as a, a little bit too inefficient. Somebody just trying to keep the stick uh, quite still and not going up and down or side to side is is their part of their constraint to help them um, maintain a little bit more stability and not have too many rotations or movements too much in in one plane. Usually around the pelvis and the trunk. Um, obviously, you have different. Uh, movements in different axes in the pelvis like forward backward tilt rotating forwards backwards and uh upwards downwards tilt um like in the longitudinal frontal and sagittal plane for the listeners who might not see the video um and if you have too much movements in one of those planes it can sabotage the others for example if um in the uh forwards direction you're 
have too much anterior tilt and it's just collapsed forwards, there's not going to be able to be movements in the other planes that can occur as much as they maybe should and that balance is going to be thrown off. So having a stick on the back there like that and trying to keep it as still as possible, it's not saying that you need to uh, brace your core and squeeze your glutes whilst you're running because we know um, that those sort of um, uh, conscious control type cues are, are not going to be uh, – good enough to transfer into uh, live uh, unconscious control when we're playing games and, and such. But um, enough repetition of just holding the stick still can give you some good uh, some good feedback on doing your 15-meter sprints for your running technique. So something like that. And that being said, uh, you see videos of people all the time. I think JP had had a few videos posted of his training with rugby teams and then you see like um, people mim- mimicking the same thing with their coaching and people running with sticks on their back and it's just they're just holding a stick and running all over the place. Um, so it loses a little bit of the um, the the uh, its potency as a tool, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah. But um, also that being said, I must say with some of the things like friends, like things that you mentioned to me earlier, like uh, single leg cleans and and these running exercises and things with um, with different implements and stuff. It's obviously devil is in the detail. So for me, I'm working now a lot more with groups. And when you're working with groups, the the total number of options that you have of exercises to um, make players faster, make them more stable, make them more robust, it comes down quite a lot because you need those um, constraints and exercises to be so clear that if I'm watching a group of 20 guys at once, they can't uh, all be needing different verbal cues it's just the focus is this one thing um and that's all you need to focus on and narrow the focus down whereas when you're working in rehab and you're having people one-on-one or one-on-two you can uh, coach a little bit more with a little bit more detail not overcoach verbally but you have more time to watch and provide feedback and change okay actually we're going to switch out this constraint and instead of running with a stick on your back we're going to run with it and you're punching overhead because the stick on the back constraint is not working for you, Todd, because you might right. not, uh, react to it one way. You might have a stiffer lower back or something than I do, but it works really well for me. Or we might be running and then we're turning the stick to one side and holding it there for sports like mine, which are multi-directional and, and 360 degrees. So um, not all constraints work predictably with any one individual. And then, yeah, when you have bigger and bigger groups, I, f- I feel like for me, at least working in the strength blocks in the gym and then also on the field those options come right down really small um, the bigger the group gets yeah um, yeah so so part of what so my understanding of Bosch's idea is part one idea that you, you kind of mentioned is that uh, locomotion is really important that's kind of really what these field sports is all about good locomotive skills good running skills and if you want to get better at that you better be doing something that looks kind of like locomotion so all of this all of his exercises uh, do. And then there's also, he has kind of a theory of, um, you know, it's all individual and different people have different faults, but he does have some theories about how that pelvis should be controlled and the mistakes that people are usually making in controlling the pelvis. Is that right? Can you kind of go over what kind of tends to go wrong with, with running, let's say with controlling, uh, the pelvis, what, what's it, what are some common mistakes that people make in controlling their pelvis as they're running? I don't know if that's yeah. I think yeah. We already touched on it a little bit before. I I would 
preface this uh, before going into it with like I've had some chats with people before and afterwards listened back and thought like mm, or thought back to it and been like uh, this is not like we are looking at the pelvis and you have to have these very fine changes in degrees here and degrees there. It's not like a pelvic mafia type situation, but if you speak to friends about it, like you said, um, the running pattern is the basis of all running based sports and linear running is the start of that. And the pelvis and around that area or the control of the pelvis and the trunk and all the muscles that attach to it basically is the launch platform for everything else that happens and the self-organization of how your running pattern is, is developed and how you can then, make changes of direction from there or stop and turn and, and go backwards. Um, but like I said before, the, you have different movements in the pelvis in the different planes of motion or the three planes of motion. And quite often, at least, um, like I said, in the area that I'm working in at the moment with footballers, you will see quite often that like uh, a lot of uh, forward collapse of the pelvis sabotages the potential for movements in the other planes to occur. And then, gives overload to certain types of tissues. Um, for example, if you have that forward tilt of the pelvis and somebody is taking off and, and trying to sprint upright um, and they are also would normally have a little bit of forward rotation, uh, forwards and backwards, but that can't then occur, then all of the muscles, particularly attaching from the femur to the pelvis, at least with footballers in kicking sports, all have to brace or pull and work a little bit harder or, or, or might not be able to extend out to proper ranges of hip extension, therefore working within smaller ranges of motion. And then you start to get groin problems and overload yeah. issues and stuff like this. Um, of course, it's, it's much more complex than just simplifying to that, but those are quite endemic. Um, I would say in all field sports and a lot of the field sports athletes that I've worked with. And with that, you can see if you're running somebody across 40, 50 meters and you're filming them and getting filming from the front and filming from the side and just watching if the pelvis has collapsed forwards and their legs are loping back out, out, out the back of them. So Not the, only is that in. Yeah. So yeah, the so pelvis collapses forward. That might lead to kind of like the, the foot coming too close to the butt on the, on the, when the foot yeah. goes back. Yeah. That, yeah. that type of a mistake. And then also you could look at it from one side in that, potentially if someone's been running like that their whole life, they're just very well adapted to that. So maybe it's not an injury risk, but if all of a sudden that's changed because of some joint stiffness or change in footwear or whatever, and that's occurred all of a sudden that that could be an injury risk because they're running in such a way, but also you could say, okay, they're running with your forward collapse of the pelvis and their legs are loping out the back and friends would call that negative running. That also doesn't give you quick options to make a turn or to swerve or to, so it's also not performance uh, improving either or efficient. What are ex some examples of simple constraints with running that would kind of make that movement pattern, make the control of the pelvis and the sagittal plane more obligatory, prevent the kind of mistakes? Is that some of the high knees type of exercises? Does that kind of require you to do that? Um, not high knees so much. I think uh, high knees is uh, a little bit of a myth they don't need to be so high it's it's probably easy ones that i would use is we're sometimes doing like um sort of steady 20 kilometer runs across pitch tempos almost and hands on hips is an easy one i don't use the stick so much personally because of the issues that we uh, we discussed before but um hands on hips and the same thing like try to keep the shoulders from turning way too much side to side if 
that that is the case that people are, are rotating lots with their with their hips and the shoulders. Obviously, when you're running and you have a, a bringing your left leg forwards, your right shoulder counter rotates to maintain that equilibrium. But sometimes that tips too far and there's way too much rotation in the in the longitudinal axis. Um, yeah, hands on hips is an easy one. Um, reaching your arms up above your head is another easy one because the the cue or the, is the task cue is just reach, reach, reach as high as you possibly can to the sky. And the constraint on that is that you're reaching high without arms and then you have like quite a lot of uh, tension taken up through your trunk and it's quite hard to then, if you try to then keep moving too much rotationally, um, it's quite difficult um, bringing the arms up and bringing the arms down or adding little rotation then. So like running a straight line, um, putting up hands across the chest or not even putting the hands across the chest, turning the upper body to one side to look, turning back to the middle, turning back to the other side. So maintaining um, some upper body and lower body separation. It's also really, really key for, um, for field and court-based sports. Yeah, and I should, um, I should uh, I've done a lot of these uh, exercises and my impression every time I do them is like before I do it, well, I'm always kind of surprised at how hard it is. And how, what, what demands this puts on the body and how differently you have to move under those constraints and how uh, useful it feels. I mean, whenever I do these kinds of exercises, I like immediately feel like I've got a kind of a vision of being more athletic and moving more efficiently, which partly what got me so interested in this stuff. Yeah, I think like I have a personal experience of training with friends for a long period of time and it's nothing like your typical capacitive or like overload based training where you take a back squat and you take it from 40 kilos to, to 140 kilos. Um, those adaptations I think are quite long, really long. Like I think for strength, uh, neural adaptations take 12 months or longer to see the full effects of it. These ones you can have quite quick changes if you're, especially if you're, when you're working in professional sports and day in, day out, you can notice changes within a few sessions to a couple of weeks. You can notice serious changes, but it's definitely a different feeling to, oh, I'm getting stronger. It's, it's, it's quite an abstract type of feeling where you're, you're feeling more, some, in some cases, more supple and you have access to different ranges of motion, but also just more stable in general. And I, I think of it like um, for your listeners, like a lot of, like talk of all specific stuff like uh, planes in the pelvis and stuff like this. But I just think of it sometimes myself as if you look at the best athletes in the world, all around the world, like we're talking about um, the world cup before, like the Brazilians are just setting the world cup on fire at the moment. Like Brazilians in Brazil, when they're young little kids, how do you think that they got to the level of movement IQ and movement skill that they are at the moment? Um, I'm sure you, you can give me an answer, but like, uh, for your listeners, like it's most likely that they grew up playing on the streets in favelas in barefoot and on dusty surfaces, probably with a, a, a really crappy, crappy ball and just in these really extremely robust, challenging, chaotic environments. And when the environment is that chaotic, the body needs to be made very simple. So you have that aspect of play where they're just enjoying it so much and it's competitive and you have that arousal. So they do hours and hours and hours of it. But then that environment is a, is is a constraint in itself for the body to then make itself simplified, but make itself stable. And when you add years and years and years on top of those things, you start to see the emergence of these um, stable bodies with uh, key parts of the body that are just 
super incredibly robust and well-controlled. Plus you have the, the skills aspect with, with the ball at the feet. Um, and that serves them so well later on in life. And somebody like Franz has come along and just sort of given heaps of detail to that, outlined the specifics of how that works. And somebody like me and, and um, John Pryor and Franz himself in, a few years ago is kind of almost making a, an artificial um, setting for the exact same thing with the, those constraints in the environment and training that like the, the favelas or like in Africa or like uh, Jamaican sprinters, you know, almost creating uh, those types of training environments artificially in more sterile ways, I guess, yeah. um, to, then, to then create the same sorts of um, adaptations and changes in athletes. Yeah, so I, I remember Fran saying something like what the body's really interested in learning. I mean, it's all about solving motor problems. And what the body's interested in, in learning is the patterns that solve many, 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 many different types of problems. Like if, if you can find one movement pattern that helps you solve many, many different types of movement problems, that's the one you're going to remember. That's the one that's going to stick. If you learn some sort of movement pattern that solves one particular problem, like, like most exercises in the gym, like th this movement pattern will help you lift this weight in the gym, but it doesn't really help you do anything else. Your nervous system's not going to be very interested in that, but when it learns the pattern that works for everything, uh, like, some of these ones that you're encouraging people to learn on the field, like something related to locomotion, that's what sticks. And you can only, you can only identify that if it's used in many different circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Multi-applicable um, universal movement patterns, super, super valuable. Definitely. And um, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head really. I knew somebody was listening at that conference and that one person must've been you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that gets me, it kind of makes me think of this idea of attractor, attractors and fluctuators. This is Bosch's term for thinking about movement patterns that you see from repetition to repetition to repetition and from great athlete to great athlete, uh, applicable in many circumstances. Those are what Bosch calls attractors. The fluctuators are the aspects of technique that it can be varied from rep to rep. We always need to vary our running pattern from step to step and rep to rep. It's always different, but there's something about it that's always the same. Do you use those terms? Do you like those terms? Is that the way you think about it? Um, I do. Uh, I don't necessarily coach it to people. I keep it more to myself. Um, if I go back to the analogy of the young, the young footballers around the world growing up in the rough environments, like those environments, you could say are developing these attractors, the stable economical components of movement that are super valuable little, little, um, sort of, uh, movement chunks, if you will, like around the pelvis, around the ankles, around the trunk, especially around the core. Um, and somebody like Franz is, is, a, a few levels smarter than me to go and say what exactly those attractors are in the body. And you have attractors at different levels of the body too. So you have total movement pattern attractors, um, like, uh, for example, keeping your chest out when you're rotating. So if you're running straight and you rotate your upper body, you want to keep the chest out to help you maintain the upper body, lower body separation. Um, you also have like sorry sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but compared to kind of collapsing and flexing as you're as you're rotating, yeah. So you can there's some good pictures. Sorry to interrupt you. There's some good pictures on on Bosch's website and probably your website as well. Rugby players, they got the ball and they're kind of turning and their chest is extended. It just looks good. 
it, yeah. it looks really good. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, of course, go anybody listening who's getting their interest picked, like go and read Francis literature, or they have lots of courses that go into hyper detail on all of those things and anatomical biomechanical reasons why for all the attractors and stuff. Um, for somebody like me, I'm more interested in like, okay, these are my key attractors that I need to work with with my athletes or with my injured players, and then I'm hammering those home. Um, so there's levels and levels of detail that uh, go beyond my my pay grade. But um, also um, attractors like when decelerating or braking that you use multiple joints to break or, or joint coupling is, a, is one of the principles of friends' work where your hip and your knee are uh, coupled together when you're um, stepping and braking to decelerate so that you bend over hinging at the hip and not through the spine so that your hip knee and ankle are all sharing breaking forces together something you you learn really well through playing tennis for example if you have to come run to the net and take a take a low shot and you strike the ball at the same time as your as your step getting nice and low and then and then coming back out and then of course you go into more um uh, zoomed levels of um of attractors too like um, states of specific muscles, like what is it, hamstrings, for example? Um, what is the, the, the a muscular state of stability, or what is a, a, an intramuscular attractor of um, of the hamstrings when sprinting? We could argue back and forth that is there's an eccentric uh, element to it, or that it's a isometric, elastic, or or quasi isometric state. But um, certainly, like different muscles throughout the body in different tasks also have attractor states too. Um, so likes going the, from, he likes the hamstrings to be kind of isometric, right? That's his idea. Yeah. That the hamstrings are are really isometric, and then the eccentric component that gives you the the bounce is the tendons moving around, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We, we won't go down that one. Probably the answer is somewhere in the middle there. But working with hamstring injuries is fantastic. An interesting and, idea. Uh, that it's a good question. It's yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, and there's quite, quite a lot of hotly debated. Twitter tweets and stuff going on about it constantly, but in practice, like I've used, I've used elements of both depending on what the injury is, the type of injury, what they're coming back to and stuff. Um, but yeah, going back to the attractors, different, different levels of attractors at muscular level between muscles, between joints and then total movement patterns. Um, and finding what, it, what are the key movement patterns for whatever sport or activity it is that you do. Um, Can we talk then, about hip locks specifically because that seems to be one of the more important ones and see a lot of exercises directed at getting the hip lock attractor. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking about the pelvis before. And um, when you go back, we're also talking about the, the running cycle as well. When running straight and striking the ground, I think of it more me personally, uh, the hip lock uh, one is the one that's been made famous really by friends and by, by John Pryor as well. It's not like uh, it's a bit overblown for me because it's, it's, it's important, but it's not like the first thing I do when I see somebody is like, Oh, I need to look at the, the hips. I need to see if there's hip lock there and stuff because it's difficult to, to ascertain. It's difficult to see. Um, but when you're running straight, if you're running straight at me and we're filming you or I'm watching you from front on, you come out and you strike the ground and then striking the ground, obviously you have ground reaction forces. If I'm looking at the free side of your hip, if that's dipping quite a lot, I kind of think of it for physios or for osteos like as a, a, a high-speed Trendelenburg or opposite Trendelenburg sign almost. Um, the forces around the, the hip uh, and pelvis in general on the stance leg um, – bracing 
co-contracting, so agonists, antagonists, synergists, all contracting at the same time to brace um, and provide a lot of force closure around the pelvis so that that opposite side pelvis doesn't dip too much. And then you can you can recoil off the ground mixed with the ankle and step through to the following step so that you're not losing um, energy or potentially losing elastic energy on each stride. Um, but then that can then be extrapolated to shuffling laterally, moving side to side, sidestepping. Um, if I'm running straight and you, or if you're running straight, like we said before, and you step off your left leg in the, in the, with the intention to go right, the same thing that the right hip or the opposite side hip doesn't dip too much. It's not that the, um, the position of the hip and the angles is the hip lock. It's that bracing and co-contracting all around the, the stance side of the hip or the, the leg that's on the ground, um, providing that, that force closure and that lift of the opposite hip. That is the, the, the hip lock. Um, yeah. but as I said, for me, working, trying to get, make, athletes and footballers and runners more efficient it's more the coupling of the ankle and the hip together um i never decouple the two really so having that recoil not also be imagine somebody running straight and you again running straight at me and you're running you hit the ground your heel very quickly lifts after initial contact and you see immediately that recoil of the the pelvis on the opposite side that also lifts up very quickly you've got that you've got a solid hip lock and then i run at you and it's the opposite I strike the ground, my heel stays on the ground, I go into much deeper dorsiflexion, I'm maybe not as stiff an elastic runner, and then that hip drops as well and it takes more time for that re- recoil to occur and go for, for my next steps. And obviously you have knock-on effects for that as well. If I've got that stance leg and my, my hip and pelvis dips down, vulnerable tissues like my adductor group, for example, might then have to do more work to control that dip for a longer period of time or maybe I'm spending more ground contact time um, in stance and these types of things and you can have knock-on effects for for small little muscular injuries or problems around the pelvis and you could you could look at hip lock as a, a potential cause or a potential solution for a lot of um, abdominal and pubic related issues as well there's also a really murky area with the um, yeah. abdominal related groin pain adductor related groin pain you know all the inguinal and pubic related groin pain all those areas um, you could see that as, as not a, not a blanket fix, but quite often in running sports, guys with those issues have real, um, struggles with a lot of the exercises and the, the things that we, we work on around hip lock and ankle and hip coupling. Yeah. So let's say, let maybe can we, can we look at <clears throat> hip lock as being the optimal attractor, the optimal solution to like the most basic problem of locomotion, the most basic problem of locomotion is that we run on two legs and we've got a pelvis that a pelvis that uh, is only going to be supported on one side at a time. And what tends to happen when you run on uh, one leg and you've got only got one side of the, the pelvis is the other side of the pelvis falls. So being stable and coordinated and organized in single leg stance is like, is like one of the most basic movement skills possible, especially for any field athlete, right? Sure. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. That simplification for sure. I sometimes think about the same thing. Like, what are we built to do? Probably from an evolutionary perspective, it's probably distance running. But yeah, if you imagine that each step like that, whether you're a distance runner or a footballer or whatever, each step that you take, imagine that you do have a little bit of that extra dip that has to be controlled by um, small glute muscles or groin muscles or all muscles and all the same at the ankle. If each time 
you're having a little bit of a leak of that energy and then you multiply that by each step, then that's maybe the body is thinking that that's, that's a way to protect itself because it's, it's a form of passive protection, but it's costing you energy on each step and you could potentially be, be more efficient and you could reduce injuries by fixing it, but you could also massively boost your, your movement economy as a distance runner or yeah, also, in, also in field sports, but certainly, yeah. That's yes. our, um, so you you could create fully designed your, locomotive locomotive system. Yes, say. I've heard you mention before the difference between passive and active attractors. So you can be attracted to a stability strategy that's very active versus more passive. Did you talk about that difference? Maybe as it relates to kind of the, how the ankle works, or even how the hip works. Yeah. Um, yeah, those attractors that you have, you mentioned attractors and fluctuators before. That's a, that's a concept from um, dynamic systems in that the attractors are the stable, economical, low energy cost, typically, um, components of movement. And the fluctuators are the thing that, things that are always changing, um, like uh, hip lock is an attractor, but your um, stride length or the, the, the certain joint angles that you have might be a fluctuator. Um, you have active... Um, performance enhancing protective attractors so we already spoke a little bit about that at the hip with the with the hip lock in that the bracing around the, the stance side of the hip keeps the um so that that hip lock is an active protective performance hey, lee, lee i gotta i got to uh, i gotta interrupt you about ten seconds ago, you went out for ten seconds. Oh. Would you would you mind at which point backtrack just a little bit? <laughs> you were which, saying that the, uh, the the about the co contractions with hip lock. Yeah, so if you look at hip lock as an attractor, um, yeah. it is a performance enhancing protective attractor because it protects the body from injury, but it also makes you uh, can make you more efficient in your recoil and your um, your strides. Same uh, at the ankle, actually, if you're running upright at speed, if you hit the ground and immediately you're very quickly after initial contact, your heel comes up off the ground. Um, that is also a, a, a stiff springy stride, which is a, um, a protective, but also performance enhancing attractor. If you look at um, a different, uh, if you look at the ankle differently, then if you were to stride and you, I think we mentioned before, like your heel stays deep on the ground and you go into um, deep uh, dorsiflexion, then this would be a, um, I'm getting lost here, a, a passive um, non-performance enhancing attractor. Um, so both bad, whereas the others were, were both good. And then you have something like, um, freezing degrees of freedom, like somebody who's swinging a golf club for the first time, like they move in a, in a big block. Um, then that's, that would also be a, um, a, a passive, um, non-performance enhancing attractor. So the, uh, let, let's go. I, I'm kind of interested in that ankle idea because I feel like when I run, when I try to run fast, uh, I am kind of constrained to use the passive strategy to, uh, I guess, get the plantar flexion, get that heel to come back off the ground. In other words, I know the fastest sprinters when they run, what happens? The heel like is barely hitting the ground, right? So they're very actively, they're like ready with that whole calf musculature 
to prevent the heel from going all the way down and then drive it back up. But my heel will go all the way down. And the only way I get back up is like by passively, you know, using the joint capsule and the passive structures there to kind of rebound it and flex it back up. So, so, so your idea is that should be a much more active process. Yeah. And if you look at um, like, if you Google attractors and fluctuators and friends, his name, for example, you might see like attractor wells where like, there's like a deep groove for, for attractors and fluctuators where the attractors, if you rolled a ball across that landscape, attractor would be a deep well and the fluctuator would be something at the top and active attractors or performance enhancing ones like the hip lock we spoke about, they can be quite deep. Um, but also the passive ones can be even deeper. So still, it's still, um, an element of stability, but it's passive stability, like your deep dorsiflexion in your ankle. Like, you know, yourself, your ankle joint and your talocrural joint is designed to sort of be so congruent that it locks you in. So somebody who runs in such a way that might be so ingrained in their stability, but it's passive stability or a passive attractor. Whereas somebody who is a sprinter who is so well-trained in that might have the opposite. They're so stable, but, but more actively and helps them with performance that helps them perform better, but also um, uh, protects their ankle in a different way. Yeah, it occurs to me that this is kind of a general rule of good movement. Like you can think even with posture, like some people can be attracted into postures where you're just kind of like hanging off of your joints and you're hanging off of your ligaments instead of kind of like actively getting up straight. And in some ways, it's an efficient and attractive strategy because you're not using your muscles as much. You're just using the passive stuff. But uh, over time, maybe it's kind of dangerous and it, it's not as good for performance. Yeah. I think about that a lot because, um, basically if you think about it, when you talk about posture, like the way that I'm seeing now, how long we've been sitting here, like the body is just looking for any way to conserve energy at all costs. And if that's passive or active, it's probably not interested so much, except if obviously in sports, the active solution can make you that much quicker and you can train it to to basically convince the system that it's it's more valuable than than being passive um but yeah posture is obviously a little bit different to the way that we're moving at high intensities and stuff as well but um certainly that idea of the the body and brain being very interested in conserving energy is a is a really good example to compare with the ankle one in in running that we spoke about but this is where this this is where the strength kind of merges with the coordination and it goes in both directions because you know part of what's going to get you maybe more wanting to use that active attractive pattern with the with the uh with the calf is like having calves that are ready to go that have the uh, you know the force production capacity and so so when you're working on that you want to well, what are some of the ways that you train the calf to, to be more attracted to these good patterns? And let's talk about that, the idea of pretension a little bit. Yeah, I think just uh, doubling back to, to um, what you said about um, strength as well, like uh, getting strong and, and having good coordination. Like I don't see a separation between the two. Like some people, especially with friends' work, will say like, oh, it's this coordination-based strength or these like – you speak to people at different sports clubs and people in clinics and stuff. And they're like, Oh yeah, I use a uh, Bosch's work for this and that. But it's like, they use it sprinkle it a little bit of it here in their program and whatnot. But I see the two being, being basically put together. You have like force production, how much force can you produce? And then you have like force application, like when can you apply the force and at the right time? And if you have too much of the, the, the former, then 
how you like, and you can't use it in the latter. Like you have, you can produce loads and loads of force under a squat or in the case of calves in a machine or something like that, but then you can't apply it in the running cycle. Then what use is it? It's like anti-functional. Um, but yeah, um, I think, uh, someone like Franz also with different areas of the body really like in his literature and, and books and courses and stuff really kind of sh- uh, brought to light, like the, the various, the, the changing functions between different body parts and um, the way that structure influences function and stuff like this in high intensity movement. So like if you look at the calves, for example, they are pretty much used for as a group for, um, elastic energy recoil or like transporting energy from the knee to the ankle so if you looked at that off the top of my head in two different ways like if you accelerate from a start and you're pushing off you have the typical triple extension so you transport energy from your hip to your knee to your ankle which results in that triple extension and push off um, a final push off and that's that energy transport and then you might go and uh, run upright or continue running or go on a on a on a long run or something and then you upright running and then you have that same elastic recoil of the calves um same like bouncy springiness um and it has to be able to 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 um provide both of those both of those functions and then switch switch between them quite a lot um and then training that is really like reflected a lot in the same ways like uh if you're doing push-off type work we do a lot of um a lot of barefoot work, a lot of work where um, I suppose like I wouldn't go isolating the calf in terms of training, even when there's like a a calf injury. Um, Probably where possible, I try to, if somebody has a calf tear, for example, try to get as close as possible to the context that they want to get back to, which might be running or playing football um, as soon as possible, depending on the, on the severity. Um, so yeah, things like, um, if you're looking at like, um, push off work and having push off work while you're rotating around the, the axis of your foot, there might be like sled drags quite early in, in rehab, as long as it's to- tolerable. Um, that's for that energy transport and push off for acceleration, um, turning that into hops and like hops up boxes and stuff like this. Um, jumps off different surfaces might be one foot elevated one foot flattened so you have one leg pushing off it uh, and extending hip knee and ankle but at different times to the other leg um these types of things and and also as well if you were to have a calf injury you'd also be looking at some of the exercises the hip and ankle coupling that we were talking about before with with hip lock um and with ankle stiffness combined so like preparing your foot to to hit the ground and to um, develop a, a lot of tension before you strike the ground so that you're, you can plant a flex just before you hit the ground, um, then hit, and then you're not collapsing into that, that deep dorsal flexion as well. So you're getting ready for the plantar flexion even before even, even before it happens, that kind of that pretension, that readiness, that kind of like – like like limit what about the muscle slack <laughs> sorry i'm sorry i'm babbling here the, does this have something to do with kind of like reducing muscle slack this kind of like lack of springiness i'm kind of reminded of the idea that a golf ball will bounce higher than a deflated 
ball. It seems like with some of these Bosch exercises, you're trying to like turn your lower body into more of a golf ball than a deflated kickball. Yeah, certainly in that area of the body, like muscle slack, if you think of like total muscle slack, the way Franz talks about it as like whatever muscle we're thinking about the calf group as a rope and you have the two attachment points on the end. And if you were um, wanting to take up muscle slack, then you would pretense those muscles before you strike the ground. For example, if you're switching your feet over when you're running, um, the alternative is if you were standing still and wanted to do a jump to remove slack is that you take a big counter movement, but yet in most high intensity movements and certainly sporting movements and what I'm working in taking those big counter movements, you don't have time to do it in time pressured sports. Um, and there's just a, can also be a, an injury risk as well. If the, if that's the way that you are, yeah, you would, you're training. I suppose the calf is maybe not the best way to think about it. Um, but yeah, certainly if you look at the, your golf ball example, like imagine that you have the, from your hips to your ankles, a whole series of muscles and they're all pulled tight and taut and their muscle slack is taken up. And then you want to bounce on the spot or bounce from one leg and bounce from one leg to the other and be nice and stiff. Like the one with the muscle slack taken up before the ground contacts and pre-tensioned is going to be the more efficient springy bouncy one, as opposed to one that is a little bit floppy and then has to take small counter movements at, at each ground contact and finding strategies to um, remove that muscle slack and um, yeah, maintain that throughout movements in relevant parts of the body is I suppose what we do a lot in sports and in, in rehab that's different abstract way of thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, if I think about the way that I jump up and down, if I'm, for example, uh, skipping rope, that very kind of stiff, uh, you know, golf ball type of a thing where, where, where the muscles are working almost isometrically and I'm just popping up and down, jumping rope kind of naturally. And then the difference between that and the way I might jump upwards, if I gave myself a big counter movement first, and I was just trying to go up as high as possible, where I kind of slowly went down and then slowly went up, I might jump higher, but it might be the type of movement pattern that's not quite as relevant on the field because the, the you know, that the forces need to happen within this really quick time window. And when you're in the gym, what, what type of, uh, how are you training your muscles? It, it seems like a lot of the, uh, the gym movements we do, like let's say a, a deep squat and back up, there's, you know, before you come up, there is a very deep drop. So isn't that a concern that Bosch has with like something like a deep squat that it's kind of like it relies on muscle slack, it relies on on counter movement to create the force, and maybe there's a negative transfer there? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Friends has, uh, I mean, that's, not- that's kind of an extreme Friends idea, right? Yeah, I think as far as like deep, deep, heavy back squats, friends will have some meaner things to say about it for transfer to sports. But um, yeah, certainly, um, certainly, certainly correct. Um, I forget what you said before you talked about the back squat example. You mentioned something else. Uh, I think I was just saying that, uh, well, oh, kind of like the difference between jumps, yeah. jumping when I'm doing uh, like skipping rope versus let's say I just tried to, to like jump up as high as I could. Now, that's a great uh, idea to jump up as high as you can. But 
you know, the, the slow counter movement that I would do to do that is not something that's going to happen a ton on the field versus kind of like the way that I would be moving and the way my muscles would be organized is when I'm forced to jump as quickly as possible. Yeah. Those are two yeah. different things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And that's why I like in sports a lot and also in rehab, like we try to min- minimize the counter movements as much as possible um, to take up that muscle slack. Um, obviously, you, you can't So you jump, onto a, you jump onto a box with as little counter movement as possible, something like that. Like, for example, say you said you want to jump as high as possible um, and instead of um, just doing a, a free jump, you jump, but like you start sitting on the chair that I'm sitting on now. So I'm like not completely sitting still, but I squat down. I start just touching my bottom on the chair just so that I've got enough tension and, and slack taken up basically in my body. And then I explode up without dipping down and putting my weight further onto the chair first. And then I might go in within a set. I might go changing the different heights of that chair if it was changeable or sitting on different corners of different boxes or different box heights at each time to then provide a little bit of variation to how I remove slack at at different joint angles. And I think the squat example that you said, like I always think there is certainly a place still for traditional uh, heavy strength and developing strength in, in given ranges of motion. But like, I think what we understand about strength now as an industry is that strength is highly specific. And when, when you're training it, it's highly specific to the joint angles. It's specific to the load. It's specific to the stability demand. Um, it's specific to the speed. So if you're going to go and do a heavy back squat, like to what ends, like what is that for? Is it like getting really deep? If it's for rucking in rugby or setting up a scrum or something, that might be a very viable option. Uh, but for example, for the sport that I work in at the moment in football, like strength down below certain deep knee and hip angles just doesn't really make sense. The part where it possibly could make sense is for eccentric strength for deceleration. So breaking and dropping, dropping low, but even then they're not getting that deep so much. And you could maybe even argue that you're better off with high velocity eccentric strength. Like I jump from the top of my roof or maybe not that high jump from a 60 centimeter box and land and stick it still, or I'm doing running and deceleration drills, which is more velocity and, and more speed. And it's still, it's still strength, but it's just extreme high velocity eccentric strength. Maybe again, we're, we're talking like dancing between that general and specific um, training um, spectrum. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. How much strength, I mean, you know, rugby players, they need, they need muscle mass just to protect themselves from, from injury. Like even, even, you know, that, that's just kind of armor that they need out there. The soccer players, I'm going to say soccer, not to confuse my, uh, my Americans here. How much, how much strength training does a soccer player need? I'm sure it depends on the individual, but you know, at your, your level that you're teaching there, how much strength training do the, do the guys do? Um, <clears throat> Strength being like a. I mean, I mean no, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean weight training. I mean, getting yeah. in the gym, doing doing the, you know, your traditional weight training exercises. Oh, okay, traditional stuff. Well, I mean, speaking for our program, like it's sprinkled in throughout a season, traditional heavier strength or maximal strength even, um, but it's very minimal. Uh, it's specific to those key scenarios, like um, I mentioned, deceleration, eccentric strength for deceleration, um, managing the center of mass height, being able to control that well um, for like weakling guys or guys who have not had any exposure to to any sort of strength training history. But largely it's this, um, let's say, 
coordination-based strength um, that is very much developed around these key attractors and key parts of the body and key overall um, movement patterns that are that are key for our, our team's playing style and our coach's playing style um, and more uh, traditional strength or gymnastics-based strength and heavier strength stuff for, for upper body and for the shoulders because it's relatively low impact. I look at it like um, what are the potential um, – benefits and adaptations that we can get from that heavy traditional strength and we spoke already about it before the 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 complete neural adaptations that you might get from starting a traditional strength training program will probably come like 12 months and a lot of the times here we have guys that come through and they they go on loan and before 12 months is even up or they get sold and they go to somewhere else um and then the Opposite side to that is what is the effect and the, the near and far effects of that strength training. The far effects are the potential neural benefits of increased force production. Does that guarantee that they're going to be able to apply that force in efficient and key ways in moving at speed and running and decelerating and defending? I don't think it guarantees that. And then in the, the near effects is football players will not exposed to it will get a hell of a lot of uh, doms and muscle soreness and potentially might puncture their motivation to continue. And we are playing games like an NBA schedule in this season because of the World Cup where it's every three or four days. Um, so, of course, we could do that and it takes time to develop a resilience to that or a tolerance to that. Um, is it worth the, the, the short-term effects that we get in terms of the, the stiffness and soreness and, um, and doms? Maybe in some cases, which will microdose it, but other times, uh, other times not really for me. Uh-huh. So, in answer to your question, we are training strength in a typical season week, three three or four times per week. Um, mixed strength training, small doses of traditional strength, but largely focused on our yeah coordination based strength. Okay. Well, I think we've taken a, a pretty good amount of your time there. What? Um, where can we find you online? Did, did any uh, anything you want to tell the listeners about where they can find you, products that you have, anything like that? Um, I'm on most of uh, social media channels. There are. Um, I'm also uh, a, a mentor of my John that worked with friends. Friends, that worked with Franz Bosch as well. John that you met at our courses um, in the John US. John Pryor, who worked with Franz before. Yes, correct. Um, John is a mentor of mine, and we have some some offerings uh, online together through our handle. It's uh, called Speed Power Play. So we post semi regularly on things. We're both quite uh, quite busy guys with our with our jobs in sports, obviously. But um, we have some things in the works in the way of uh, applications and some mini courses and stuff like that. Um, and also, if you give us a follow on the usual, the Twitter, YouTube. Um, Instagram, Facebook, these types of things. Um, yeah, our, our Speed Power Play app is probably more oriented towards the, the sports um, niche group. Um, but a lot of the things that we discussed today is, is like practical imp- implementation of principles of friends and of ours that we use day in, day out in sports to keep people um, available to play, injury-free and performing at their best, improving speed and agility. So, um, anyone who's interested in that, feel free to to take a take a squeeze at it. We have some more things coming out early next early next year. Now it's already Christmas. Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it, Todd. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Better Movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to toddhargrove.substack.com and become a subscriber.